This archival episode of Design Matters was recorded in April of 2015. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. This is the 10th anniversary of the podcast, 10 years of designers and other creative types talking about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with Linda Weinman of lynda.com about how the internet is challenging the traditional classroom model. That worked because of the scarcity of information. I think in an age of abundant information, we have a completely different challenge. Here's Debbie Millman. To learn a skill, you, A, go to school, or B, teach yourself. But to be self-taught, you need books, you need manuals, you need hands-on experience. In the digital age, some of the greatest resources for people learning on their own are found online on sites like lynda.com. In 1995, Linda Weinman co-founded the site with her husband, Bruce Heaven. It has since grown into a company with nearly 500 employees. Linda Weinman, welcome to Design Matters. Why, thank you for inviting me. So, Linda, growing up, I read that your mom described you as a precocious kid and that you loved school and learning. You were a straight-eight student until your parents got divorced. What happened then? Well, I think... For a lot of kids, it's extremely traumatic to have your parents divorce, and you get into, at least for me, I turned more inward. I wasn't as much in reality or whatever reality is. I was in more in my head, and so I was having a, a conflict about my own self-worth. I was in charge of taking care of my brother and sister because we lived with my grandparents for a while. And it was a period of rejection for me. I felt rejected by most of the important adults in my life, except for my grandmother, who was very important to me. And so it changed my relationship to school. It changed my relationship to everything. Now, this was in the 1950s, and I read that at the time you thought you were the only person in your circle whose parents were getting divorced. My parents got divorced in the 70s, and I felt that then. So I can only imagine what it was like in the 50s. How did you manage? I mean, I think everybody manages with whatever cards they're given. And of course, manage is a whole spectrum. But I think it was true that kids had never even heard that word. So I did feel that I was the only one. And I think it was at a time where television portrayed every family as this sort of perfect family unit. And father's nose best. Exactly. All those crazy shows. Uh, You know, that was what you saw in the media. That was what you thought everybody else's life was like. So when you were in high school, you stumbled upon a book called Summerhill, which described a type of school that was very different from the public school you were attending. The school offered a lot of classes. It allowed students to choose the subjects they wanted to take rather than having prerequisites. I read that you were enamored with the school, but your parents couldn't afford to send you there. You did not take that as an insurmountable obstacle. What did you do? Well, I actually could not go to the school Summerhill because it was in England, but I found a local school that was based on some of the same ideals, and I had a job at a hot dog stand where I earned $80 a month, and I introduced myself to the headmaster and asked if I could go and pay for it myself, and he he agreed. And so I ended up being the only student in my high school who was paying for myself, 
And, you know, I guess I put myself through high school. (laughs) So you said that this was when you realized that you were willing to work hard for something, willing to create your own path, and that you were a self-starter. How do you think your life changed at that point? I don't know that it necessarily changed at that exact moment, but it was setting the framework for it to change. And it's funny because I just recently had a high school reunion, and I had a much more romanticized version of what that school had been like. But it was actually extremely chaotic and probably very irresponsible of my parents to have allowed me to go there because Why? it was Why? a free-for-all. It was, it was you know, kind of during the hippie era. There was very little structure. And, you know, for some kids, they did nothing. And in fact, for myself, I remember spending a lot of time throwing pottery and just, you know, not wanting to go to classes and not doing things. But eventually you get bored and eventually you want to start learning. And that was the entire premise of Summerhill. And in a lot of ways, I know I'm jumping ahead, but it was a giant influence on lynda.com, this idea of a school where you trust the students to learn what they think they want to learn and find their own passions. And and it does create self-motivation and and it does, you know, create the ability to define what it is that you want to learn and also be excited about learning. You graduated college with a degree in humanities from the Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. Two questions here. Why Evergreen State College and why a major in humanities? Well, it was one of the only progressive colleges that I could find. I I was pretty, at this point, after going through alternative high school and scoring very poorly on the SATs and really having not been part of mainstream education. I was looking for something for college that would be similar and also a place that would accept me. (laughs) So I applied to Evergreen. It was a very idealistic public college. It's still around. It's uh, just celebrated its 40th year and I was there. So it was by choice, Partially, and also it was probably one of the few colleges that would have accepted me, to be perfectly honest. I know you asked two questions, but I've already forgotten the Why the one. major in humanities? Oh, the major in humanities. I think it was, again, I couldn't really tell you. It was just what drew me in. And I, at the time, really didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. In fact, I used to tell my friends, well, I'm going to be a court reporter. And I'll tell you why, because I was a very fast typist. And at that point in time, not very many people were good typists. And I just assumed that I was going to go to college and that was going to be for fun, but then I was going to have to figure out a way to earn a living. And I thought, you know, gee, I could earn whatever per hour, way more than $1.35 if I did that. And I read that at that time in your life, you seriously thought that you weren't anything too exceptional. Oh, I absolutely thought that. Yeah. I mean, I, I still don't really think I'm anything. I know I've had an exceptional life, but I actually try not to think I'm too exceptional. I I appreciate being humble. Well, I mean, I think there's a difference between being humble and being outright self-deprecating. True. And, <laughs> and if you felt that you weren't anything too exceptional, you could go in any number of paths, mm-hmm. one of which is to try to prove that you aren't not too exceptional, yeah. too ne- yeah, double yeah. negative, yeah, sorry for right. that. No, no, you're right. Um, or you could just sort of live with what you feel and, and sort of fall into that malaise, and you didn't. Well, I think if how I would describe it was I didn't think I was exceptional, but I did know that I had a lot of drive. You know, we now call that an A-type personality, which I am. And a lot of people who knew me in high school said that they always knew that I would go on to do something. Of course, it's easy to say that in retrospect, but... 
I did have a lot of drive, and I didn't feel very secure in my parents' ability to support me in my future economic forecast. And I knew it was 100% up to me to make my own way. I just didn't have any fallback plan. So that put a little bit of pressure on me. And then I had the added, I think I had two added pressures. I had the added pressure that I had gone to the types of schools that fostered this idea that you should do what you love. So I was also searching at a very young age for what that would be. And I did not know. And the other was that I discovered feminism when I was in high school. And I read the, you know, the early Betty Friedan book and Ms. Magazine. And that instilled a completely different idea that was, you know, I can be whatever I want and I should be whatever I want. So I think I had a lot of internal pressure to not just survive economically, but to do what I loved and to excel as far as I could and not set limits on myself. So when you were 23, you graduated a little bit after you graduated from Evergreen. You opened two retail stores, Vertigo on Melrose and Vertigo on Sunset in Los Angeles. And your grandfather helped finance this effort. Um, What kind of stores were they and why retail? Well, when I was in college the last year, I actually ran the college art gallery, which I loved. And I had decided that that was the career I wanted to go into was exhibit design. And after graduating, I couldn't find work in that area, but I was interviewing with somebody who owned a gallery and he also owned a retail store. And so he hired me to be his store manager and that and buyer. And so my first job out of college, I was going to trade shows and picking out items and it was a gift store. And so I, I realized that I really liked it. And right about that time, punk and new wave were emerging. And I thought it would be really cool to open a store that was featuring that kind of sensibility and aesthetic. I I had been to Europe after graduating from college, and I had discovered Fiorucci, which was really cool in Italy. Yes. And, oh my um, God. and I thought, you know, we, we don't have a Fiorucci. And so I tried to do something like that. Now, I understand that you credit those particular years of observation, of having to please people as some of the traits that have helped you in your business now, in addition, of course, to working hard and taking an initiative and so forth. In what way have the traits of observation and pleasing people contributed to what you currently do? You know, anybody who's ever been a teacher, I think, wrestles with the fact that you have all these different personalities and all these different learning styles and people at all different levels who are in your class. And so being sensitive to others, which is a form of pleasing people, is a really great skill in a teacher. And I learned that it served me well that I could reach people with a lot of different learning styles. And I think in some ways it was helpful. And I I can also think of ways where it isn't helpful too, you know, because I think it's a very, if I'm generalizing, I think it's a very female trait to please others. You know, I watch a lot of other people get along in the world who who more do things and ask for forgiveness rather than for permission. I and really so, envy those people. Yeah, me too, because I think I'm very wired to ask for permission and I'm very wired to please people. And so it definitely served me quite well. But there are times where it's a liability, too. Four years after you started your business, the stores went out of business. Um, At that time, you were in debt. You weren't able to pay your grandfather back or feel proud of the final outcome in your own words here. What did this teach you and how did it impact your future approach to business? It taught me that I took way too big of a risk financially, that I wasn't a very good 
manager in terms of, um, you know, I felt that I, it had been a failure. And I don't look at it that, it that way anymore. But at the time, I just never thought I would do anything that big again. And I never thought that I would have that big of a failure either. And so I played it a lot safer. And I spent the majority of my career being a consultant or a contract worker, especially when I was in the film industry. And I was afraid to start a business or or take a really big risk or have employees. I loved the idea of just working for myself, just being responsible for myself. And I, I did that until I was 40. You know, I think I closed the store in, when I was 28. So from, you know, for those years, I never started anything larger than something that I could do myself. Now, isn't that amazing given how much pressure young people have to succeed right out of the gate? It's such tremendous pressure that I think is so unfortunate. Um, so let's talk about your time in the film business. You worked for DreamQuest. You did animation and special effects. You worked on RoboCop 2, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Wow. <laughs> Tell us about that. What was that like? Um, it was fun. And it was something that I fell into. It was through nepotism. It was through... It was through a friend. Friends. I don't know. It, it was actually through my boyfriend at the time. He was a CalArts graduate, and he had worked on the original Star Wars, and a lot of his peers had started special effects companies, himself included. And so I started as his assistant, and I, I learned through him how to load a camera and how to do all the the drawings and how to find my way in that career. And then I... I branched off and did it on my own, and I actually got pretty far in that I became a director, and I, I did a lot of my own projects, and eventually I had my own little company, which was really just me, working and contracting with others. So it sounds a lot more glamorous than it was. It was more production work than really creative work, and I was good at it, and I earned a good living. Um, but it wasn't until I discovered the computer and then taught myself how to use the computer that I, I learned the difference between liking what I did and I was proud of what I did in, in special effects. But I, but I didn't really own it in the same way that I owned the career of computer graphics and then becoming a teacher and everything that came after that. That was truly something that came from my own interests and my own passions and not nepotism. So was this the same boyfriend who asked you to help him with his purchase of an Apple IIci? He wanted you to help him understand how to use it and ask you to read the manual so that you could teach him. That is correct. But it was I think it was an Apple II Plus, okay. which is before the Apple IIci, I think. And um, yes, he, he was disappointed. He came back from a trip from Hong Kong with this computer. And to please him, I pulled out the manual and then I was mortified about, you know, how it was written and how it was written for someone other than me, someone far more technical than me. And I just put the manual down and started trying things and teaching myself. And I found that I had a lot of pleasure in that. And then I had a lot of pleasure showing other people what I'd learned. And that kind of started my teaching career. Around this time, you were invited to give a lecture at the Art Center College of Design in Pasadena about your computer animation work. And that changed your life as well. I think they then asked you to come on board and start teaching based on the popularity of that singular lecture. 
That is true. And the part that is probably an important story arc is that between the time that I taught myself how to use computer and I lectured at Art Center, I had a child and she was about eight months old when I gave that lecture at Art Center. And it was really hard to do work in the film industry. One of the characteristics of that industry is that, you know, you get a series of shots and they're just due on a very specific date. It's a lot like branding and, you know, design work, but, you know, you have a hard deadline. There's really no flexibility. And so when you have a young child and no one's going to tell you when that child's going to get sick, when you're going to need to nurse, you know, all these different factors. You, you aren't really in control of your time the way you are when you don't have a child. So the idea of, of uh, you know, going and, and teaching, which after that one lecture, I was offered a teaching position there, seemed like it was the answer to a problem that I was encountering being a young mother. And um, also, I was so overjoyed to be asked to do something about computers, which had really been my hobby, not my vocation. So that was also really exciting. So I think it was around this time that you realized that many, many, many more people than the 80 or so students a year that you were teaching needed to know how to create websites. And there were very few people teaching these skills. This was the early 90s. Mm -hmm. So you decided to write a book. <laughs> so typical Linda style, like, okay, I'm going to do this now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I remember being in the bookstore and I was looking for the book to assign to my arts and our students and it wasn't there. And I thought, hmm, someone needs to write this. Hmm, I write curriculum already, and I've written a couple of magazine articles. That was all I had ever written. And, um, you know, maybe I could write this book, and it would be fun to research. And I didn't end up getting a contract. I, I pitched the idea of it, and I was rejected. And so I then decided to – well, I was able to get a magazine article series, and that was how I wrote the book in Which chapters. Which magazine? It was called The Net, and it exists no more, but – it was created by Chris Anderson, who's now the curator of, of TED. Right. So he had this former magazine publishing career, and that was one of his magazines that I wrote for. And so that essentially funded your research for the book? It did. And by the time I did get a contract, I had already finished the manuscript, and I had two competing offers, and I was able to get a really good deal. And I went with the, um, you know, I had a hard choice, actually, between Random House and Macmillan. And I went with Macmillan, and, um, you know, the rest was history. I mean, the book ended up becoming this runaway bestseller, and that launched a whole other chapter of my life. I mean, it's sort of wonderful vindication, given that initially it was something you had to fund yourself, and you were rejected from all of the publishing houses that you submitted the proposal to. It is wonderful vindication, and, and there was another part of it that was wonderful, because I wrote the book in a very casual style, which really became my signature style. And I think it also has carried through to lynda.com. And it's it even has roots in Summerhill. And I think what it is, is this idea of making information approachable and interesting and believing that people are capable of learning things. And I had written the book in first person, and the publisher had never published a book that was not highly technical. And so they'd taken my manuscript and depersonalized it. So when they returned it to me, it was unrecognizable. And I just remember sobbing over how they had ruined it. In my opinion, they had ruined it. And so I looked through with a friend. We combed through the contract and realized that there was a clause that if they rejected my manuscript that I could take the rights back. And so I, I, you know, bravely summoned up my courage on Monday morning and called the publisher and said, you know, I consider this to be a rejection and I, I refuse to have you publish it this way. 
And they backtracked and they said, okay, we'll put it back to the way you had it. And they published it and it was a runaway bestseller for them. And it was hundreds of thousands, hundreds of, of thousands and dozens of languages. And, and that's a really rare situation where your first book is a, is a bestseller, right? So you and Elizabeth uh, Gilbert, I guess so. <laughs> Think about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, in 1995, you took twenty thousand dollars that you earned from your book royalties, and created the Ojai Digital Arts Center with your husband, who you had married at this point, Bruce Heaven. And you taught graphic and web design out of what was a former dentist office, <laughs> dentist former office. Oh, you're a good researcher, Debbie. That's amazing <laughs> that you dug that up. Okay, I don't even know where you found that to, out, but. We just well, envisioning you with the chairs. I, and it the wasn't with the chairs, but we could never figure out why internet, why wireless didn't work between the walls. And it turned out that they were oh, lead walls. Yeah, x-ray so, machines. Yeah, all right. <laughs> now, at that point, is it true that you had the Vatican sending nuns to take classes on web design alongside designers from Martha Stewart, alongside a porn star who needed to learn how to touch up her skin on Photoshop? It wasn't a porn star. It was actually oddly, a family that owned a porn site. And there were <laughs> four better. of them, even better. There were there was a, fa- a dad and a mom and then a son and a daughter-in-law. And they kept asking questions about skin tone. And we finally <laughs> figured out what they were up to. But um, yes. In a former dentist's office. I love this. And it was all done on dial-up, right? This was dial-up modem time. Yes, but the classes were physical. People came. Right. Okay. So um, we were not online yet. In the beginning. Right. So everything was in the school that you had Correct. in the in the dentist's office. So you, at that point, you bought the name lynda.com. I actually bought the name when I was teaching at Art Center. Um, I bought the name in 1995 for $35. $35. Because of Debbie at Debbie.com, which that? is not me. I know. I want that so badly. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So so you turned you ended up turning the Ojai Digital Arts Center into lynda.com. And in your first year of business you had 1.7 million dollars in revenues all on that $20,000 initial investment. How did that happen? <laughs> you know, there's a lot of timing and just charmed life that I cannot explain why me, why then, why it, but you know, we were the only school at the time in the world that was teaching web design. You couldn't study it at college. You couldn't study it anywhere except for at this school. It was the it book on the topic. It was the it place to study. And it was beautiful. Oh, I was a you know really neat place to come. We just had no idea that it was going to be as successful as it was. And I think it's one of the first instances of an Internet age business. Before that, you were a teacher and you might reach the 80 students a year you were going to teach or however many it was going to be. Or you might write a book and you might reach that many people. But this was a case of us leveraging the popularity of a successful book and then starting a completely different but vertical business around it and having it succeed. So at that time, it was a it was a physical school, and you and Bruce were basically doing everything. You were cleaning the floors, setting up computers, writing the curriculum, teaching the classes. At that point, business is booming. You had classrooms, books, videos. You were doing VHS tapes, I read. And then the dot-com crash hit, immediately followed by 9-11. How did that impact lynda.com? Well, it was devastating, and our business just dropped overnight our classroom business and really the thing that kept us alive. We went from the first year of having $1.7 million in revenue and then 
subsequent years, we've gotten into the three or four million dollar a year range. And then all of that happened. And I think that year we earned under a million dollars. And so we had to lay off a lot of our staff. We had 35 employees and we just had to adjust and adapt. And the thing that was keeping us alive was actually the books, because I had at that point a series of books. So it was the advances from the publisher. It was the royalties from the publisher. And that's really not enough money to fund a whole company and a whole staff. So it was it, we, we had to scramble to figure out what to do. I read that you clawed your way back up and reinvented yourselves. What did you do? We put the lessons online and we did everything. I mean, we wrote books. We went and did in-house consultations and had a conference. And, you know, we were doing way too many things, which I think is typical of a lot of new businesses. We were just doing whatever we could to keep the lights on. It was anything and everything and in way too many directions. And and initially, because it was dial-up, we were early with video online, even though we published the library in 2002, we had in the first month 30 people who signed up and in the first year 1,000 people. And so it wasn't an overnight success by any stretch, and it was actually cannibalizing our VHS and DVD business. Everything was scarce and scary, kind of like we just went through a really dark time. I mean, for a lot of people, they're still in a very dark economic time. You have to dig deep and figure out, you know, what is going to work and try a lot of things, and that's what we were doing. What is the business model of lynda.com today? Well, it's actually not so different than it was when we first started it, and we were influenced by a number of things. Summerhill was a huge influence. The idea of just having a library of fantastic teachers and lots of choice and lots of subjects and allowing and trusting people to learn what they want to learn. Very highly influenced by writing a successful book and earning royalties myself. That was my first experience with passive income where you have done something one time and you get paid for it many times, depending on how popular it is. So we set lynda.com up where we pay royalties to the contributors, which is really rare in this day and age, but even more rare when we started in that we've always charged for lynda.com. And the, and the idea of it is that it's highly curated. It has very good teachers, very high quality video, very high quality instruction, relevant, kept up to date. And people are willing to pay an affordable price for that. And we have never changed the pricing. We've been doing it now since 2002 when we only had 20 classes. And now I think we have thousands of classes. I don't know the exact number. And you've never changed the We've pricing model? We've never changed model? the pricing model. So it's $25 a month, and it's been $25 a month in since your entire history. Mm-hmm. You've said that you think one of the beautiful things about having a subscription company is that your customers keep you very honest. How so? Well, if you're a free site, there's really no skin in the game. And, you know, people might sign up a lot more freely. I don't know if even if that's so true anymore because everybody has privacy concerns. And I think we've realized over the years that free is not free. But when you charge for something, uh, you know, you have to make a conscious decision. And then if you're going to recommend it to other people, you have to really believe that it's got that value for others. And so the fact that we've grown organically over time, I think, is testament to the fact that we have a valuable product that or we have a product that people value and that they are willing to recommend. Linda, how do you create your classes? How do you how are you able to decide what people are interested in learning about? In the beginning, it was 
all web design. And that was an area that I had become expert in to write that first book. And it was a much younger industry and more simple. It was more simple times. So you really could know who all the experts were because I was a writer in that space and a speaker in that space. I had met all the other experts. And in the beginning, it was just hiring a lot of people I'd met through my profession. And it was also, I think, good because I was an industry insider and I could tell a good presenter or a good trainer or a good teacher from a bad. And um, then how? as we grew... How? How? I'm sorry. I don't yeah, want to no, interrupt, no, but No, how? no. That's a good... It's a really good question. It was my own personal opinion, you know? Of so course, just it's subjective. Chemistry, vibe. It's subjective. I mean, listening to other people teach, you know, reading their books, being at conferences with others and seeing who the popular speakers were. But it was totally subjective. And in some ways, that is another story arc. I've learned over time to trust myself more and more as I've gotten older, wiser, more experienced. And I, you know, it's not a computer, it was never a computer algorithm that, you know, made us pick these certain teachers or these certain topics. In the beginning, it was all web design. Then because Bruce is an illustrator and a photographer, he pushed us to go into design and graphics. And I used to teach motion graphics and interactive design. And we just as we realized it was a successful idea, we just kept branching into more and more topics. And so um, that was not a very deliberate or well-researched decision. Today, we have a lot of factors. We get a ton of requests through the website. And we also have data that we can mine through the website in terms of failed searches or common searches, customer feedback. And then because we've taken the same idea that we began the company with, which was that Bruce and I were industry experts. I was more expert in web design. He was more expert in photography and illustration and graphic design. And in the beginning, it was sort of all of our taste, all of the people that we chose. And then as we grew and scaled, we picked other people to be in the position of acquirers, acquiring the talent who were also industry veterans and had industry credibility. We decided that that was important, that those be credible industry experts who, who are sort of oversee. It's almost like being the chair of a department. You know, you wouldn't be in this role that you're in had you not had a great career and, you know, lots of proof and validation that you were worthy of leading a whole department. So we do that same thing with our acquisition team. I spent quite a bit of time recently going through some of your classes, and congratulations on getting Sean Adams to teach for you. He's he's not only a teacher, he's like should be running for president of the United States. He's so— Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> oh, my God. He's so interesting. He's so charismatic. He's so easy to listen to and look at. Yeah. Um, how do you— how, all, so the, how, all the girls swoon. I, I, I can only imagine. He looks yeah. like George Clooney. He does. He's very um, handsome. How do you get somebody like Sean Adams to say, you know what, I'm not only going to be president of the AIGA, the National Board of, of Directors, I'm not only going to have my own practice, I'm not only going to teach, I'm also going to work for lynda.com and make a class that people all over the world can see. How do you get somebody to do that? I think in the, in the beginning, it, like I said, it was just people that I knew. And I happen to also know Sean. 
And, you know, I'm a former teacher from Art Center College of Design. He's a current teacher at Art Center College of Design. You know, I knew him from my brief stint on the board of AIGA. So we we had a relationship, and I think he was really intrigued with lynda.com, and he tried one class. And then what he discovered, which most of our teachers discover, is that he got a lot of critical acclaim for it and a, more attention for doing that than almost anything he's ever done. And it's a little bit addictive. You know, if you're a classroom teacher, you know you're popular with your students if they're requesting you and, you know, you get good teacher evaluations. But there's something really seductive about hearing from all over the world how you're impacting people's lives. And I think what surprises a lot of our instructors is that they get so much visibility. And also, it's a great passive income stream. So he's earning royalties, unlike when he teaches in college, you know, he gets paid for that time that he's teaching. But on lynda.com, if he's popular, he's going to continue to make money into perpetuity as long as his topic is relevant. So it's a very attractive proposition, really. It's it's a value proposition. It's a win-win. What I like to say is we created a company where everyone wins. Our customers win. You know, we get to grow and scale our company and our contributors win. And that's rare in this day and age of free because a lot of other sites don't pay their contributors. Most of them do not. Well, then they're not going to get quality because you do get what you pay for. Can you talk with me a little bit about your philosophy of education? I read that you see education as serendipitous discovery, similar to that of a library. And I found that incredibly intriguing. Well, I don't know if I would call all of education that way. What I think I was referring to was that lynda.com didn't really try to emulate traditional education. We didn't say, you know, semester starts on this date, this week you're going to get this reading materials, this assignment is due. We modeled it more after a library, which is much more free form, where you might go into a library and, first of all, when you're in a classroom, everyone's having exactly the same experience. They're listening to the teacher. The same thing is going on for everybody. When you're in a library, every single person in that library is doing something completely different from the person next to them. And you might, you know, read a sentence from one book, a chapter from another, you know, take a whole other book and devour it. But you are deciding what, how much when, from where. It's more of the Summerhill approach where it's self-directed learning. Unlike MOOCs, which have become, you know, really well known in the last couple of years, where it is taking, you know, college or college class and putting that online, but it still follows a lot of the same ideas of of a classroom on a certain start and end date. Lynda.com is just very free form. You can do it at two in the morning in your pajamas on a holiday. You know, it doesn't really matter. And you can do a little or a lot. We trust our members to decide that for themselves. It's not mandated. So it's more like a library. Technology has changed and transformed everything, the way we shop, the way we date, the way we bank. And now it's really transforming education in a really big way. How do you think that this will continue to transform the way we learn? I think it will transform it in a much more major way than it has to date, but we're on a trajectory that is impossible to change. You know, that is just the availability of information and knowledge. And it used to be that you did have to go to school to learn most of what you were going to learn and that you didn't have resources outside of your teacher and what your teacher was going to tell you was representative of a field, 
that worked because of the scarcity of information. I think in an, in an age of abundant information, we have a completely different challenge, which is a, a completely different way of teaching, which is actually more akin to the way that art and design is taught which is more project-oriented, open-ended assignments, and portfolio-based versus you can memorize something and get a multiple-choice questionnaire filled out accurately. And so I think there's this divide right now between formal education, not so much in higher ed, but much more in K-12, where we're still very much in this old model, industrial model of, you know, bells ringing, you're going to study this from this hour to that hour, everyone will be graded the same, everyone's supposed to cover exactly the same information. And I think we're moving into an age where my hope for it is that there's far more open-endedness and fostering of critical thinking skills and being able to be self-directed, being able to collaborate with other people, being able to communicate really well. I think there are a lot of social and soft skills that have nothing to do with a specific discipline that don't really get passed on easily through this multiple choice sort of test mania that we've been in for the last couple of decades. So I see the fact that information is abundant. It's, it's a huge paradigm shift that you're not expecting your teacher to know everything anymore. It's kind of on you to know that everything's out there. So how do you get good research skills and how do you navigate and how do you curate your own education to a degree? Up until very recently, you were running lynda.com from that very early $20,000 royalty start, that investment. But recently, you received $103 million in venture capital funding Um, And earlier this year, lynda.com announced it had raised $186 million in financing led by the investment group TPG Capital. How has this changed your business? Well, it's definitely put a lot more pressure on us. I mean, I think one of the realizations probably about 10 years ago was that we had a lot of interest from the investor community in us. And in the beginning, we resisted the idea because we really weren't sure how we would use investment. And lynda.com, oddly or luckily, or I don't know what adjective to use or word to use here, but we've always been profitable and we've always been able to fund our own growth. And so we didn't really see the reason why we would need to take on investment. And I think after so many years of people wanting to, we came to a point where we felt like there were new things that we could do. We, we started to think about, okay, so what would we do if we had extra funding? And we realized that there were a bunch of different areas that we could accelerate our growth with. And then we raised the first round, and we still had this incredible, enormous investor interest in us. And there are a lot of things that we're going to do with the money and that we are doing with the money that are going above and beyond what we could do organically. So my last question is about your future. You've said that the Internet is democratizing education and that advancing our culture is your mission and you're not anywhere close to being done. So aside from the infusion of financing, where do you think you're going to go next? I would love to see, and, you know, one of the changes is that I am i don't control lynda.com 100% anymore, so I influence a lot, but I don't have the ultimate authority to decide where we're going next. But one of the areas where I hope we will be going next is to be able to 
take on a little bit more dimensional to where it's not just broadcasting videos, which I think we do very well, and there's a very big need for that, and I'm not diminishing the importance of that whatsoever. But I think that having portfolios and having learning community would be something that would be really wonderful addition to what we do, and helping people build social skills in addition to knowledge and, and the types of skills that we're teaching. So that's a direction that I would love to see us move into. I can't wait to see what you do next, Linda. Thank, Thank you so you. much for being on Design Matters today. Thank you for having me. To find out more about Linda Weinman and maybe take a course on 3D animation, web design while you're there, go to lynda.com, L-Y-N-D-A dot com. This year, we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we could make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.